Welcome to the Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for the Law of Self-Defense. Welcome to the fifth of seven parts of my reading of New York State Rifle Pistol Association v. Bruin, the seminal U.S. Supreme Court case on the Second Amendment, released in 2022. In the last show, we completed the reading of the majority opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas. We're now moving into the concurrences with Thomas. There were separate concurrences written by Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. Each of those are relatively short, so I've combined all of them into this show. So let's jump into the concurrences written by Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett right now. Hey, folks, if you like this Law of Self-Defense content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider picking up a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. It's a real physical book. It's not just a PDF download. You can check it out on Amazon, where it's five-star rated, over 1,400 reviews, but don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book, learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. And here, Justice Alito writes his own concurrence. Justice Alito concurring. I join the opinion of the court in full, but add the following comments in response to the dissent. Much of the dissent seems designed to obscure the specific question that the court has decided, and therefore it may be helpful to provide a succinct summary of what we have actually held. In District of Columbia v. Heller, 2008, the court concluded that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep a handgun in the home for self-defense. Heller found that the amendment codified a pre-existing right and that this right was regarded at the time of the amendment's adoption as rooted in the natural right of resistance and self-preservation. The inherent right of self-defense, Heller explained, is central to the Second Amendment right. Although Heller concerned the possession of a handgun in the home, the key point that we decided was that the people, not just members of the militia, have the right to use a firearm to defend themselves. And because many people face a serious risk of lethal violence when they venture outside their homes, the Second Amendment was understood at the time of the adoption to apply under those circumstances. The court's exhaustive historical survey establishes that point very clearly, and today's decision therefore holds that a state may not enforce a law like New York's Sullivan Law that effectively prevents its law-abiding residents from carrying a gun for this purpose. That is all we decide. Our holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun— nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess, nor have we disturbed anything that we said in Heller or McDonald v. Chicago, 2010, about restrictions that may be imposed on the possession of carrying of guns. In light of what we have actually held, it is hard to see what legitimate purpose can possibly be served by most of the dissent's lengthy introductory section. Why, for example, does the dissent think it is relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years? Does the dissent think that laws like New York's prevent or deter such atrocities? Will a person bent on carrying out a mass shooting be stopped if he knows that it is illegal to carry a handgun outside the home? And how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of its list took place in Buffalo, New York? 
The New York law at issue in this case obviously did not stop that perpetrator. What is the relevance of statistics about the use of guns to commit suicide? Does the dissent think that a lot of people who possess guns in their homes will be stopped or deterred from shooting themselves if they cannot lawfully take them outside? The dissent cites statistics about the use of guns in domestic disputes, but it does not explain why these statistics are relevant to the question presented in this case. How many of the cases involving the use of a gun in a domestic dispute occur outside the home, and how many are prevented by laws like New York's? The dissent cites statistics on children and adolescents killed by guns. But what does this have to do with the question of whether an adult who is licensed to possess a handgun may be prohibited from carrying it outside the home? Our decision, as noted, does not expand the categories of people who may lawfully possess a gun. And federal law generally forbids the possession of a handgun by a person who is under the age of 18 and bars the sale of a handgun to anyone under the age of 21. The dissent cites the large number of guns in private hands, nearly 400 million. But it does not explain what this statistic has to do with the question whether a person who already has the right to keep a gun in the home for self-defense is likely to be deterred from acquiring a gun by the knowledge that the gun cannot be carried outside the home. And while the dissent seemingly thinks that the ubiquity of guns in our country's high level of gun violence provides reasons for sustaining the New York law, the dissent appears not to understand that it is these very facts that cause law-abiding citizens to feel the need to carry a gun for self-defense. No one apparently knows how many of the 400 million privately held guns are in the hands of criminals, but there can be little doubt that many muggers and rapists are armed and are undeterred by the Sullivan Law. Each year, the New York City Police Department confiscates thousands of guns, and it is fair to assume that the number of guns seized is a fraction of the total number held unlawfully. The police cannot disarm every person who acquires a gun for use in criminal activity, nor can they provide bodyguard protection for the state's nearly 20 million residents or the 8.8 million people who live in New York City. Some of these people live in high-crime neighborhoods. Some must traverse dark and dangerous streets in order to reach their homes after work or other evening activities. Some are members of groups whose members feel especially vulnerable. And some of these people reasonably believe that unless they can brandish, or if necessary, use a handgun in the case of attack, they may be murdered, raped, or suffer some other serious injury. Ordinary citizens frequently use firearms to protect themselves from criminal attack. According to survey data, defensive firearm use occurs up to 2.5 million times per year. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report commissioned by former President Barack Obama reviewed the literature surrounding firearms use and noted that studies that directly assess the effect of actual defensive uses of guns have found consistently lower injury rates among gun-using crime victims compared with victims who used other self-protective strategies. Many of the amicus briefs filed in this case tell the story of such people. Some recount incidents in which a potential victim escaped death or serious injury only because carrying a gun for self-defense was allowed in the jurisdiction where the incident occurred. Here are two examples. One in 1987, Austin Folk, a gay man from Arkansas, 
was chatting with another man in a parking lot when four gay bashers charged them with baseball bats and tire irons. Folk's companion drew his pistol from under the seat of his car, brandished it at the attackers, and fired a single shot over their heads, causing them to flee and saving the would-be victims from serious harm. On July 7, 2020, a woman was brutally assaulted in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant in Jefferson City, Tennessee. Her assailant slammed her to the ground and began to drag her around while strangling her. She was saved when a bystander who was lawfully carrying a pistol pointed his gun at the assailant, who then stopped the assault, and the assailant was arrested. In other incidents, a law-abiding person was driven to violate the Sullivan Law because of fear of victimization, and as a result was arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated. Some briefs were filed by members of groups whose members feel that they have special reason to fear attacks. I reiterate, all that we decide in this case is that the Second Amendment protects the right of law-abiding people to carry a gun outside the home for self-defense and that the Sullivan Law, which makes that virtually impossible for most New Yorkers, is unconstitutional. This brings me to Part 2B of the dissent which chastises the court for deciding this case without a trial and factual findings about just how hard it is for a law-abiding New Yorker to get a carry permit. The record before us, however, tells us everything we need on this score. At argument, New York Solicitor General was asked about an ordinary person who works at night and must walk through dark and crime-infested streets to get home. The Solicitor General was asked whether such a person would be issued a carry permit if she pleaded. There have been a lot of muggings in this area, and I'm scared to death. The Solicitor General's candid answer was, in general, no. To get a permit, the applicant would have to show more. For example, that she had been singled out for attack. A law that dictates that answer violates the Second Amendment. My final point concerns the dissent's complaint that the court relies too heavily on history and should instead approve the sort of means-end analysis employed in this case by the Second Circuit. Under that approach, a court, in most cases, assesses the law's burden on the Second Amendment right and the strength of the state's interest in imposing the challenge restriction. This mode of analysis places no firm limits on the ability of judges to sustain any law restricting the possession or use of a gun. Two examples illustrate the point. The first is the Second Circuit's decision. In a case, the court decided two terms ago, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York, 2020. The law in that case affected New York City residents who had been issued permits to keep a gun in the home for self-defense. The city recommended that these permit holders practice at a range to ensure that they are able to handle their guns safely, but the law prohibited them from taking their guns to any range, other than the seven that were spread around the city's five boroughs. Even if such a person unloaded the gun, locked it in the trunk of a car, and drove to the nearest range, that person would violate the law if the nearest range happened to be outside city limits. The Second Circuit held that the law was constitutional, concluding, among other things, that the restriction was substantially related to the city's interest in public safety and crime prevention. But after we agreed to review that decision, the city repealed the law, 
and admitted that it did not actually have any beneficial effect on public safety. Exhibit 2 is the dissent filed in Heller by Justice Breyer, the author of today's dissent. At issue in Heller was an ordinance that made it impossible for any District of Columbia resident to keep a handgun in the home for self-defense. Even the respondent, who carried a gun on the job while protecting federal facilities, did not qualify. The District of Columbia law was an extreme outlier. Only a few other jurisdictions in the entire country had similar laws. Nevertheless, Justice Breyer's dissent, while accepting for the sake of argument that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep a handgun in the home, concluded, based on essentially the same test that today's dissent defends, that the district's complete ban was constitutional. Like that dissent in Heller, the real thrust of today's dissent is that guns are bad and that states and local jurisdictions should be free to restrict them essentially as they see fit. That argument was rejected in Heller, and while the dissent protests that it is not re-arguing Heller, it proceeds to do just that. Heller correctly recognized that the Second Amendment codifies the right of ordinary law-abiding Americans to protect themselves from lethal violence by possessing, and if necessary, using a gun. In 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted, there were no police departments, and many families lived alone on isolated farms or on the frontiers. If these people were attacked, they were on their own. It is hard to imagine the furor that would have erupted if the federal government and the states had tried to take away the guns that these people needed for protection. Today, unfortunately, many Americans have good reason to fear that they will be victimized if they are unable to protect themselves, and today, no less than in 1791, the Second Amendment guarantees the right to do so. And now we have a concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, with whom the Chief Justice Roberts joins. The court employs and elaborates on the text, history, and tradition test that Heller and McDonald require for evaluating whether a government regulation infringes on the Second Amendment right to possess and carry guns for self-defense. Applying that test, the court correctly holds that New York's outlier may issue licensing regime for carrying in handguns for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. I join the court's opinion, and I write separately to underscore two important points about the limits of the court's decision. First, the court's decision does not prohibit states from imposing licensing requirements for carrying a handgun for self-defense. In particular, the court's decision does not affect the existing licensing regimes, known as shall-issue regimes, that are employed in 43 states. The court's decision addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regimes, known as may-issue regimes, that are employed by six states, including New York. As the court explains, New York's outlier may-issue regime is constitutionally problematic because it grants open-ended discretion to licensing officials and authorizes licenses only for those applicants who can show some special need apart from self-defense. Those features of New York's regime, the unchanneled discretion for licensing officials and the special need requirement, in effect deny the right to carry handguns for self-defense to many ordinary law-abiding citizens. The court has held that individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. 
New York's law is inconsistent with the Second Amendment right to possess and carry handguns for self-defense. By contrast, 43 states employ objective, shall-issue licensing regimes. These shall-issue regimes may require a licensed applicant to undergo fingerprinting, a background check, a mental health records check, and training in firearms handling, and in laws regarding the use of force, among other possible requirements. Unlike New York's may-issue regime, those shall-issue regimes do not grant open-ended discretion to licensing officials and do not require a showing of some special need apart from self-defense. As petitioners acknowledge, shall-issue licensing regimes are constitutionally permissible, subject, of course, to an as-applied challenge if a shall-issue licensing regime does not operate in that manner in practice. Going forward, therefore, the 43 states that employ objective shall-issue licensing regimes for carrying handguns for self-defense may continue to do so. Likewise, the six states, including New York, potentially affected by today's decision, may continue to require licenses for carrying handguns for self-defense so long as those states employ objective licensing requirements like those used by the 43 shall-issue states. Second, as Heller and McDonald established and the court today again explains, the Second Amendment is neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. Properly interpreted, the Second Amendment allows a variety of gun regulations. As Justice Scalia wrote in his opinion for the court in Heller, and Justice Alito reiterated in relevant part in the principal opinion in McDonald, quote, Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone, through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explain that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. Nothing, in our opinion, should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and bear arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. Close quote. With those additional comments, I join the opinion of the court. And then we have Justice Barrett concurring with the majority. I join the court's opinion in full. I write separately to highlight two methodological points that the court does not resolve. First, the court does not conclusively determine the manner and circumstances in which post-ratification practice may bear on the original meaning of the Constitution. Scholars have proposed competing and potentially conflicting frameworks for this analysis, including liquidation, tradition, and precedent. The limits on the permissible use of history may vary between these frameworks and between different articulations of each one. To name just a few unsettled questions, how long after ratification may subsequent practice illuminate original public meaning? 
What form must practice take to carry weight in constitutional analysis? The historical inquiry presented in this case does not require us to answer such questions, which might make a difference in another case. Second, and relatedly, the court avoids another ongoing scholarly debate on whether the courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 or when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. Here, the lack of support for New York's law in either period makes it unnecessary to choose between them. But if 1791 is the benchmark, then New York's appeals to Reconstruction-era history would fail for the independent reason that this evidence is simply too late. So today's decision should not be understood to endorse freewheeling reliance on historical practice from the mid to late 19th century to establish the original meaning of the Bill of Rights. On the contrary, the court is careful to caution against giving post-enactment history more weight than it can rightly bear. And those are all the majority and concurrences. All right, folks, that's it for part five of seven of my reading of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, reading the concurrences of Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett to the majority opinion that had been written by Justice Clarence Thomas. When we next meet, we'll begin jumping into the dissent, the dissent written by Justice Breyer. It's a very long dissent, so it's chopped up into two parts, the sixth of seven segments of my reading of Bruin and the seventh of seven segments. The next show will be the sixth of seven segments. I'll see you there. If you like this kind of content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider becoming a Law of Self-Defense member. It's dirt cheap to at least try it out. You can get a two-week trial membership for only 99 cents. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com slash trial to sign up for that. In the unlikely event you don't like it and you'd like your money back, we'll give you a 200% refund. Most people, almost everyone, stays a member. And just being a standard member of Law of Self-Defense is dirt cheap. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month. To be a member of Law of Self-Defense, get unlimited access to all our members-only content. It's the only way to have your comments and questions on live streams be addressed by me. Uh, you get a members-only podcast. Much of our content is limited, so only members can access it. Get all that and much more at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents, 200% money-back guarantee. It's a negative risk opportunity. I hope you see you as a member real soon.